Hey everybody, this is episode 147 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas for another episode with just me as I'm going to get to some listener questions today that you guys sent in last week in response to my last episode. Thanks for those messages. Thanks also for those who encouraged me to continue talking about current events, which I'll do before we get to some of those listener questions We've got a couple of big things that happened this week Week in the running world worth mentioning. The first that I want to talk about is the Fifth Avenue Mile, which happened yesterday. This is a race, one mile race, point to point on Fifth Avenue. It has a net downhill terrain with slight rise in the second quarter mile. So it's a fast mile and one that almost 10,000 people do in New York. So this isn't just something for the elites. This is something for all runners front to back. And you know, I think as I've watched it through the years, it's been something that I've added to my bucket list. Haven't done it yet, but need to get up to New York to do this one as it's one of those cool events that has this cool halo effect. And kudos to New York Roadrunners for putting this together, not just for the elites, but for the everyday athlete as well. The elite races, however, there is much to talk about as Jenny Simpson won yet again to get her eighth victory in this race in a course record 416.1, taking about a half second off of the the course record. So really impressive results. She also more or less led this thing from wire to wire. L. Purrier, who got second place, took a little bit of a lead going into that final quarter mile. But but Jenny, of course, had it all measured and has this race dialed in with the tactics and came home to finish strong, edging Purrier at the line by a tenth of a second. And those two were comfortably ahead of third in Rebecca Mara, who ended up getting third in, in 4.22. Rebecca is a Wazelle athlete, so big, big result for her. You also had Nikki Hiltz in, in fourth, and Jessica Judd, the British athlete, in fifth. This one was all Jenny Simpson, though, you know, and and kudos to her for getting this one done. Now, the race falls this year at a different time. Usually, this is the last race of the season for all of these athletes and so Jenny Simpson even talked about how normally she would head from the race over to Shake Shack in New York and and enjoy a burger and a shake to celebrate not only the end of the Fifth Avenue mile but also the end of the season. She said that she wasn't going to be doing that this year because she's still in training for Worlds that's coming up here in about four weeks. So, So this one's a little bit out of order but it tells you that in spite of Mixed results at the Diamond League meets. Jenny Simpson is on form and looks to be a contender when it counts in Doha coming up in about four weeks. Incidentally, we also have to mention that Jenny came out on a podcast this week. She was interviewed by Let's Run.com and Jenny gave her perspective on the Christian Coleman situation. And we talk about this more actually in this week's episode of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. So you can get even more details if you hop over and listen to that one. 
But to give you the Cliff Notes version, Kristen Coleman, who right now is the top U.S. 100-meter sprinter, has has run in the top 10 all-time for the 100 meters. Young, fast guy was recently, it came out that he's missed three tests, three, three doping tests. And normally that requires a sanction. And there was talk that potentially he could even get two years, up to two years of ban from missing those three tests. Well, it came out recently that that case has now been dropped and that Christian Coleman can now compete at Worlds because of a technicality. Basically, one of the missed tests gets backdated due to some minute technical details of that missed test. So it now falls outside of the 12-month window where you can't miss three tests. Therefore, the case was dropped. Christian Coleman gets to compete. And nobody's necessarily saying that Christian Coleman is a cheater, but he definitely at least broke what we thought were the rules by missing those three three tests in a 12-month period. He's gotten off now on technicality. Simpson, though, recently came out, and in her interview with Let's Run, she said these words. She said, if you miss three tests, it's either because you're cheating or because you're an idiot. And that is the perspective that Kara shared as well. If you check out episode 10 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast, basically the way the whereabouts testing works is you have to file your whereabouts every quarter for the next three months, which sounds complicated in terms of knowing where you're going to be at, at all times during those periods. But if you get the perspective of Jenny on the Let's Run podcast, as well as Kara on the Clean Sport podcast, it's not as cumbersome as it sounds. And for some reason, if something changes, you can now actually text the change to your whereabouts to the system so that that, that can be easily updated at, at any time. And even if a drug tester shows up at your house, for example, and you're not there, then if you're in the vicinity, that drug tester will then come and meet you wherever you are to actually follow through on that test. So it's not as cumbersome as it sounds. It's set up to help make it easy for athletes as well as, of course, protect clean athletes. And the reason this is a big deal is because of the fact that due to the nuances of microdosing and the ability to get illicit substances to clear the system quickly, the reason people might miss a test is if they suddenly were caught in that short window where the the substance might still be present and they're gaming potentially the system. So it's really great to see Jenny Simpson come out and very clearly articulate that this is unacceptable. And that an athlete like Christian Coleman, who has the resources that he has, he makes seven figures from Nike, has an agent, has a coach, he has the resources to not only make sure his whereabouts are updated, but they're accurate, and of course be where he says he's going to be in order to get those tests completed. So... Great to see Jenny speak out on that. Also great to see her get that eighth victory and seventh in a row now at the Fifth Avenue Mile. She, of course, will go on with Al Perrier, who got second to compete at Worlds. Of course, Perrier is competing in the 5K, 
while Jenny Simpson has, of course, the 1500. That was the women's race, the men's race. We also had a great victory this time from the New Zealand athlete Nick Willis, who got his fifth win in the Fifth Avenue Mile, coming from behind at the very end to nip Chris O'Hare by just a, a chest a chest length. It was basically a photo finish. They ended up with the exact same time down to the tenth of a second, a 351.7, but the photo finish showed that Nick Willis just edged past Chris O'Hare at the end who had taken the lead and looked like he was going to win down the home stretch. This was Nick's fifth victory, and he's now won from 2008 all the way to now his fifth victory in 2019 across 11 years. Willis is 36 years old, so he's he's getting a little bit older, but still getting it done. And in particular, this race showed a fierce kick at the end just to squeeze by O'Hare at the very end. He also beat Sam Prackle, who was right there in third. So kudos to... <laughs> To old man Willis, as I sometimes call him. Nick Willis, of course, has two Olympic medals already. So he's got the pedigree to do this and yet continues to get it done. In his post-race interview, he said the following. He said, it's been a challenging season for me and, and it was hard to stay motivated. He admitted there were several times this year where I was like, is it worth the sacrifice anymore? But today actually says that it is. And it's going to give me another lease on life for Tokyo 11 months from now. So good to see Nick getting that fire back by getting the victory and beating those young guys out there at New York. Of course, he also got the $5,000 that Jenny Simpson got for getting the win. We also have to mention Sam Parsons from 10 Man, 10 Man Elite. He actually took it out hard in the first half and came through halfway in the lead because there was a halfway bonus of $1,000 for who, whoever was leading at that point. And Sam Parsons went out hard to get that 1000 and then smiled almost knowingly as he let the field back in it for the final kick. So kudos to Sam for being smart and getting his payday, regardless of where he finished in the field. Incidentally, Jenny Simpson got that $1,000 payday on the women's side for going through halfway in the lead. So there you go. The fifth Avenue mile kudos again to the New York road runners for putting on the best of races and kudos to those elites for an entertaining, entertaining result. All right. So with that, let's switch gears on our current events. I also wanted to talk about the, the diamond league finals in Brussels. So we talked about Zurich last week. We had the rest of the finals happening this past Friday in Brussels with lots of lots of fun and interesting results. The first that we'll mention will will be the women's 800, which went off as expected with Ajay Wilson getting the win. You know we talked about that after our U.S. our U.S. champs post-race discussion where if Ajay Wilson was able to get the win then she would allow an additional U.S. runner into the meet for Doha at the World Champs because that Diamond League winner 
opens up a potential fourth spot for the country who who got that. And of course, this time, Aj Wilson got it done, meaning that Sierra Brown is actually next in line to fill that spot. So now we'll have not only four women competing in Doha, but also four men, which which is huge. And in this race, Ajay Wilson got the win, as I said, and Raven Rogers, her training partner, ended up getting second. So the Americans went 1-2 after Donovan Brazier got it done last week in Zurich. So that's huge. But let's talk briefly how this race played out. As is typical, Ajay Wilson was in control from the start. There was a pacer in this race. Pacer went out in just over 57 seconds in lap one. Ajay Wilson was about three meters back, controlling the pace and the race from there. So really, and she pulled away in the final 200, really the, the big race or the the most important, interesting part of the race was the battle for second place as you had three athletes really competing in there for that second place spot. Natoya Gould of Jamaica, Lindsay Sharp of Great Britain, and Uganda's Winnie Nanyondo were all competing for that third spot, and it looked particularly like Winnie Nanyondo was going to get there, but Raven Rogers would have none of that. She came charging home to get second by, let's see, it was 0.02 seconds. So two one-hundredths of a second over the Ugandan athlete, Nanyondo. And they were comfortably clear of the Ukrainian athlete in fourth. So huge win for Raven Rogers. I think... This also showed that maybe she's starting to figure out tactics a little bit. You know, I talked about in our USA preview that that's something that she struggled with. She ended up getting third at USA's behind Hannah Green, who got second because of having some issues with tactics. In this case, she was able to work it out and get second. But I would still, I would still prefer that Raven Rogers do maybe a slightly better job of keying off LJ Wilson. You know, Ajay Wilson is so predictable. They're training partners. She should be able to lean on her to control the race, to key off of her in order to be in the right spot when she needs to be. But for whatever reason, that's, that's proven challenging. And look, I'm not an intermediate runner, so who am I to say or judge, but it does seem like that oftentimes Raven Rogers makes it harder on herself than she needs to, including in this race. But it doesn't matter. Alas, she got second anyway, and it's great to see the U.S. go 1-2 in the Diamond Leagues. I mean, that's in the Diamond League final. That's, that's huge for the Americans and bodes well for potentially a couple of medals coming up here in Doha in four weeks so we shall see next we have to talk about the women's 5,000 meter final where for better or for worse Sifan Hassan got another victory after winning the 1500 meter last week in Zurich in that meet she closed in a 57 to win by a couple of seconds in a 357 final time and in Brussels just a week later 
She closes in a 59-second final lap to run 14.26 and destroy the field by about three seconds over Letsenebet Gide from Ethiopia, who narrowly edged Hassan's teammate, Constance Klosterhofen, who both of those two athletes finished in 14.29. The Kenyan athlete who won cross and has the Olympic Gold in the 5K, Helen O'Beary was fourth in this one, another three or four seconds back of second and third. So here we are again, and unfortunately I have to talk about the fact that I just I just don't believe in Sifat Hassan. I don't care. I don't care what anybody says. You know, this, this stuff that she's pulling off from the 1,500 meters to the 5K to the half marathon is just video game type stuff and in my opinion if it's too good to be true it probably is I just am not a believer especially the way she's finishing these races and then coming back so quickly to race again in top form and beat athletes that that didn't do such a thing so it's just it's just depressing to be honest and I, I just cannot get excited about Sifan Hassan. I am not a believer. I mean, if you look at this race, you had also Beatrice Chepkowicz who won the steeplechase last week in 9.01. She was also in this 5K, which matches fairly closely that 3K steeple distance. She ended up coming back and finishing ninth on the day in this race in a performance that would seem to match what somebody did who was coming back after a big race just a week prior. So I'm sorry. Don't believe it. Don't believe that Sifan Hassan is that good. Now with her coach, she's talking about potentially doing the 5k 10,000 meter double at worlds. And even though she's also shown form at the 1500 meters. So the fact that she's able to show this kind of bounce back to race the way she do, is doing with the times that she's doing and, of course, the affiliation with the Oregon Project and Alberto Salazar, I just don't believe in it, and it excites me not at all. So sorry to be a Debbie Downer for those who might be Hassan fans, but that's just the way it is. When it's too good to be true, it probably is, and in this case... It seems like it's too good to be true. So, there you go. That's the that's my recap of the 5K final. On the men's side, we've got two races of consequences to discuss, or of consequence to discuss. The first being the men's 1500, which was won in dominating fashion by Timothy Churyat, who has looked strong more or less all season. I also saw him dominate in Monaco. I think more interesting to me, and by the way, Chariot remains the favorite for Worlds, and I think barring some crazy unforeseen circumstance, there's really nobody on the circuit that could beat Chariot at this stage, really at any level. And so if I were to pick a favorite for Worlds, Timothy Chariot from Kenya would be that favorite. But I wanted to talk about the Ingebrigtsen brothers, Jakob and Philippe. They ended up in second and third in this Diamond League final in 
331 and 333 respectively to get a couple Norwegian athletes in the top three of the Diamond League, which I think has to be huge for the, the Norwegian fan base as well as, of course, the Norwegian team as they anticipate potentially snagging some medals in Doha. From the U.S. perspective, Craig Ingalls finished fifth in this race to earn a PR and get the Olympic standard as he was a strong closer to move up to fifth in that final lap. So I think that bodes well for Ingalls to potentially make some waves and snag a podium spot as we look ahead to Doha. Although, of course, in coming up, you also have Matthew Sintowitz will be on the start line as well for Doha. So that'll be uh, someone to compete with, you know, for that, for a U.S. spot on the podium. And in this race, John, Johnny Gregoric ended up eighth in the 335. So not what he would have wanted, I'm sure, but impressive results nonetheless for those, especially those top five. Chiriak getting the win, the Ingebrigtsen brothers second and third, and then Angles fifth. Although I, I also want to say that the these 1500 meters in the diamond leagues to me are, are not very interesting. The paced affairs that are just really track track races from the beginning to me are not really that interesting. I really prefer much prefer the championship style racing that you will get in Doha. So very much looking forward to that. Also got to talk briefly about the steeple which was won by an athlete I've never heard of, Getnet Whale from Ethiopia. Ethiopia is not a country that typically does well in steeple chases, but Getnet Whale ended up beating Sufan El Bakali, who has been dominant on the circuit all season. He also is from Morocco and won the Diamond League Monaco that I saw earlier in the year. So I ended up edging him in what looked like a controversial finish as as whale kind of seemed to potentially impede Bacali in that final stretch but no fouls were were awarded the finish came off you know as it played out on tv with whale getting the win Bacali getting second and then you had another Ethiopian athlete Lemacha Lemacha Gurma get third probably butchering that name but that's three names or two names at least from Ethiopia that I've never seen at the top of a steeple race of any type much less the Diamond League final so that's pretty interesting you actually had the Kenyan athletes that you would typically see up there including including Kinseslis Kipruto who won the Diamond League final last year he battled injury this year and ended up seventh in this final Hillary Bohr from the U.S. ended up in a solid fifth, although he was about seven seconds off of the leader's time. So not what not what you would want to see from him, unfortunately. But top five finish nonetheless. And then before we get off of the Diamond League finals, let's talk quickly about the triple jump, one of the field events that is fun to watch. Americans had the top four finishers in the Diamond League Finals. So we swept one through four with Christian Taylor getting the win. He's now won 
seven of the last eight Diamond League finals, I believe, which is unbelievable dominance. Will Clay, American, finished second. Omar Craddock, third. And then Donald Scott, fourth to go one, two, three, four for the Americans in the triple jump. Will Clay and Christian Taylor are two Americans that have been at the top of this event, this discipline for a long time. So I expect them for sure to potentially compete for one, two at Worlds. Omar Craddock is another athlete from the University of Florida who is always lurking as well, but has yet to really break out on the world stage like Taylor and Clay. But could he get a bronze medal, maybe even a silver to help the Americans sweep the podium in Doha? We'll have to see. That's something to watch for as the triple jump is always a fun event that requires some just absolutely insane athleticism. If you've ever watched one of those in slow motion, you'll be able to see how crazy it is to see what they do. All right, so with that quick update to start things on current events, I wanted to switch over to some listener questions. And actually, I think I got a one one longer email from one listener who had a bunch of questions. So we'll get to all of those questions and a little bit more as we cover off on those listener questions. And of course, as always, feel free to send me those when you have them. Chris at roguerunning.com. Always love to interact with listeners. So feel free to send those along. So let's jump in here. First questions come from Kimberly. Thanks, Kimberly, for sending this along. She had this to say. First of all, she says, I love hearing about current running related events. Your podcast has made me a fan of this sport more than I ever had been in the past. And I find the podcast is the best way to keep up with what's happening. Please continue giving current event updates and thank you. Thanks for that, Kimberly. I got a lot of good feedback on the current events discussions, so we'll certainly keep doing those. And if anybody doesn't like it, then they better tell me because all I'm getting is positive feedback. As it gets to her questions, she says, my questions are all related to road marathon training. I've built a training plan for 2019 CIM, my third marathon, largely based on recommendations you've given over the course of the podcast. However, there are a few items about which I'm unsure. Of course, I don't expect you to answer all of these in an email, but if you feel relevant for the podcast, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, definitely relevant for the podcast, Kimberly. Thanks for asking. And you've got a six-part question, and we're going to break these down one thing at a time. First, she says, if I'm doing a 10K or half marathon race as part of a marathon training cycle, should I do the race on a down week? So that's a fairly common question, and that's actually a, a something we work through with our podcast training athletes all the time. Now, the tricky thing about planning races is that you're not planning them. The race director is. So oftentimes they fall in the schedule just where they fall. And so what I find is that it's more relevant to pick the races that are exciting for you that fit the build plan that you've put together versus worrying too much about where they sit within your overall macro because you can always adjust the schedule around that accordingly to make it work. So a race works perfectly during during a down week, but it can also work during an up week, in which case you might decide to rearrange your down weeks or potentially add on some mileage to a half marathon before and after in order to get enough volume for that day 
to make it worthwhile for a sufficient up week. So what I would say is you can race during a down week. You can also race during an up week. And then what I would encourage you to do around that is adjust accordingly. So what would that look like? So if you plan a race during a down week, nothing wrong with that at all. But then you have to also manage that week appropriately because if you're doing a half marathon during a down week it's really a hard long run at the end of a down week which in some ways makes it not really a down week even though the mileage might be lower and so in that case I would encourage you potentially to manage your overall volume a little bit for that week dropping it perhaps even more than a typical down week maybe consider not doing a long intense quality session during the week of that down week so that the overall balance of things during that down week with the hard race is is appropriately managed and potentially also consider the long runs around that so if you have an up week that race during the down week and then another up week I'd want to make sure that you're not doing three hard long runs in a row including that race so if you have if you have pace work in one of those long runs on either side of the race, then I would make sure that you don't have three straight long runs with pace work so as to overdo it. And of course, as always, you have to listen to your body to make sure that you're you're not overdoing it in this stretch as you do the race. So even if you have a certain plan, you still want to listen to your body and then manage accordingly the intensity and the volume around that race so that you don't push yourself over the edge. So that's one way to manage it during a down week. If it's during an up week then and you're doing a half marathon, then what you could do is potentially just add on mileage that day to get a little longer overall run that day. So perhaps do a couple miles warm up as you know you might even typically do before a half marathon. Go run the half hard, which would get you 15 miles on the day and then potentially do a two or three mile cool down at super easy efforts in order to get 18 miles total on the day, which during an up week with the hard race in the middle is a really solid, sufficient long run during the build to CIM. So that's a, that's a way to make it work in the context of an up week. Of course, if you're doing a 10K... You you may or may not want to add another eight miles on that day to make it all work. But if you're racing a 10K, what you could potentially do is do maybe a 15 or 16 mile easy long run the day before the 10K, then go race the 10K hard. And that would kind of double as another intense long up week even though you don't have all the volume in one run, you've got really sufficient volume and intensity across the two runs, which would mimic the outcomes potentially of what you might be doing during a normal up week. So that's a couple of different, those are a couple of different ways to make it work, whether you do a down week, whether that 10K or half falls on a down week or an up week. I think you can really shift things around to make it all work with to me, the the overarching thing with the race being that it's a race you want to do that fits into your schedule and that also falls into 
those rough windows where these build races tend to work. And just to remind people, I like to see a half marathon somewhere between four to six weeks out from a marathon if you're using that as a build race. Typically, a 10K could fall whenever. I probably prefer a 10K even slightly closer. So a lot of times we'll have athletes do a 10K two weeks out from the marathon as a hard workout of sorts right before racing a marathon. But you could also use a 10K a little bit before that half as as another stepping stone along the way to a fast half leading up to your fast marathon. So that can flex a little bit. But either way, pick the races that you're excited about that fit into your world, your logistical world, and then you can always manipulate your training around that in order to get the desired result. So that was Kimberly's first question. Let's get to her second question. A lot of these are along the same lines. She said, the week I run a 10K or half race as part of the marathon cycle, should I do a quality workout that week before the race? If so, would you recommend an economy threshold or VO2 max workout that week? Or should I just run easy the week before? Should I change anything about the week of the race or the week following? Good questions also. Also depends a little bit on what phase of the cycle that you're in. But I'll assume for a second we'll talk about a half marathon that you're doing a half marathon four to six weeks out from your goal race. Typically in that final phase of marathon training, I like to emphasize a combination of VO2 max work with more race specific pace preparation where you're doing stuff at at and around marathon goal pace. And so a half marathon being that that that's kind of in the middle, more of a tempo effort, then it gives you really a lot of flexibility for what workouts you might do during that that week of and again this is going to depend on is it a down week is it an up week what part of the cycle are you exactly in and i could really think of situations where you would do really any three of these work any three of those systems during your race week but i would tend to say that if it is a down week that you're doing the the half marathon i would tend to to have you do an economy style workout during the week, keep it relatively light, but work on that economy and efficiency and keeping the body sharp and then go race the half on the weekend. If it's an up week where you might be using or maybe even a down week where you're working VO2 max, then I think VO2 max would be the other system I might consider working that week, but doing it in a way that isn't too taxing on the body, maybe a little lower overall volume workout, maybe a little bit more rest between your intervals. You want that VO2 max work to be in control and not to dig a hole for your weekend race, but more to be a sharpening workout like you would get from an economy style workout. So I would lean towards one of those two as an option, depending on where you are. I think threshold is a little bit too close to what you're going to be doing in the half itself. So you'd be kind of doubling up on hitting that system during the week. So as I said, I would generally err towards economy or lighter VO2 max workouts during the week of the race before you go do a half or a 10K in order to be primed and ready to do that. Now, as I said, you also have to, again, consider the context, consider how you're feeling, 
make sure that you're managing that whole system so that you're not overdoing it physically. But in general, that would be my advice for that, that, that week. All right. Next question. Number three from Kimberly here is I'm very unsure about my paces currently as my running and racing lacked consistency for a couple of years due to injury. The only marathons I've run were two big sewers in 2016 and 2019, which I don't think are accurate measures of what I might do at am because of the vast differences in the courses. I'm considering running both a 10K and a half. The 10K would be 11 weeks out, the half four to six weeks out for my marathon as part of the buildup to get an idea of my paces as I progress so that I can more accurately plan my workouts, my paces for workouts and the marathon itself. Would you recommend to get the, against this for any reason? No, definitely would not recommend against it. I would recommend for it. Certainly, I think it helps to get those benchmarks so that you can dial in more specifically on your training paces. And I think that 10K that you're talking about 11 weeks out would be really good for that. You know, you could also go and do Kimberly a two-mile time trial at any time as and use that almost as a midweek workout in order to get an assessment of your current fitness and you can plug that into the McMillan calculator and extrapolate out to what your training paces might be. That is also going to be a decent indicator for you as of course would would those 10k and a half races that you're already planning with the 10k probably being more helpful because it's further out from the marathon itself. When I'm looking at paces for athletes and training paces specifically then it's it's not a perfect science, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. You really have to look at a lot of different data points. Race results is one thing to look at. Time trials, we do them here. Two-mile time trials I do in my group here as a way to hone in on current fitness levels. You also have to look at you know previous races, which, yes, those Big Sur races are not perfect corollaries to CIM because they are different courses, but they give you some sense or where you are or where you could be. And I think you probably also have some intuitive sense for what your goals might be for CIM. So that becomes another data point that you throw into the mix. And then once you pick a starting point, then you go do workouts and then you have to see how how it goes and adjust accordingly. I think one of your follow-on questions is about that. So I'll get to talking about that a little bit more in a second. But, but the, to answer your question in a much more short, in a much shorter fashion, yeah, those prep races will give you an indicator. But even before that, you could go out and do a hard two two mile time trial, eight laps on the track, thirty two hundred meters. Plug that into the calculator, and it'll probably give you a decent additional data point that will paired with some of those other results, as well as what you know about your marathon so far, will kind of point you in the right direction. All right, that was question three. Number four, you say, on down weeks in general, should I lower the mileage of all my runs that week or just the long run? How much lower in mileage should down weeks be than other weeks? Typically for down weeks, we want to see you drop your total mileage between 15 and 20%. Now, that's a rule of thumb. Sometimes it can be more. Sometimes it could be less. But in general, 15 to 20% is about right. And then where exactly that comes from kind of depends on how your week is structured. Certainly the long run will be a big part of that 
for our most advanced runners, we'll have them go from 20 or 22 miles in their long run build to a race like CIM and then cut back to 14 to 16 during down weeks for for some, for others within our group that are still experienced advanced marathoners, they might cut back to 10 to, to 10 to 12 miles for the down week. And so that's the first run to cut back. And typically when you cut back that distance, it kind of gives you a sense for what you need to cut back on other days. Most of the time I advise that my athletes really only look at the long run and then the medium long run if needed for cutting back mileage and then try to keep all the other runs, including the workout, roughly the same distance during the week. So again, most of that volume will come out of the long run and the medium long run, and then depending on what you're cutting back to, then that will tell you exactly how much you need to take out of either of those runs. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't plan to cut back more than 20% from your medium long run, and then the last, the rest of it will likely come from your long run distance. Also, during the down week, one note is that we, you know, we like to plan faster workouts in the down week. So, oftentimes, we'll be working VO2 max or, you know, your your economy work during the down week while that volume is lower we increase the intensity of those workouts to make sure that we're still keeping the turnover keeping those legs sharp especially during the grind of marathon training so that paired with the lower mileage makes it all work as you fit things together all right that was question four now let's get to question five kimberly says You've adequately emphasized the importance of running easy miles, and I do run a couple of recovery runs each week where I pay little attention to my watch and just run whatever pace feels good. However, I'm wondering about long runs and medium long runs. If there's not a specific workout built into a given long run or medium long run, should the pace and or effort be similarly easy to shorter recovery runs, or should it be faster? So, good question. I do make a distinction between medium long runs or long runs and recovery runs, there should definitely be a pace difference there. Or I should really say there should be an effort difference there because the pace is what it is. Both, if you don't have a workout, should be considered easy. And I was actually, actually got to interview Frank Shorter this past week. Frank Shorter is an athlete who is really a running legend. He won the gold medal in the marathon in 1972 and then the silver in Montreal in 76. He's the most decorated U.S. marathoner in terms of the Olympics, Olympic, Olympics at least, of all time. And I got to interview Frank f- with Kara Goucher for my Clean Sport Collective podcast that's coming. That interview will come out a little bit later. But one of the things we asked Frank about was his training back in the 70s for the marathon. And he talked about how they would go and run 20 miles every weekend pretty much no matter what whether they were in 5k specific training or 10k specific training and then ultimately that led to him doing the marathon but they were just cranking out 20 mile runs every weekend and one of the things he talked about that in that interview was that they kept their easy days easy their hard days hard and he really emphasized the difference you know hard days were really hard their easy days were really easy and they would go out on long runs, not look at their watch and just run and kind of enjoy 
the time together with his his training partners. And so it was good to hear that from an athlete who's won gold medal in the marathon kind of kind of reinforces what I talk about on the podcast. But in terms of the nuance of long run pace versus medium long run pace versus recovery run pace, I'll just tell you what I tell the runners that I coach on Wednesday mornings at the morning show. If, for example, we have an athlete who's training to run, let's say, nine minutes a mile for the marathon. Let's say that's their goal, marathon pace. Typically, what I would say for the medium long run is that the pace falls somewhere between 9.30 and 10.30 per mile if their target marathon pace is 9 flat. So anywhere from 30 to 90 seconds slower than marathon pace on those medium long runs. Should still be easy, should still be conversational, should still be in control, but could fall anywhere within that range and I would be okay. For long runs, I like to see runners go from at least a minute to two minutes slower than marathon pace. So I would tell that runner who's targeting nine minutes for the marathon to run between 10 minute miles and 11 minute miles on their long runs. Again, should be easy, should be conversational, should be in control. And if for whatever reason the runner needs to go slower than that range, I'm actually okay with it. But typically those long runs should fall in that range of that 10 to 11 minute mile. And then recovery runs, those to me are actually even slower than that. So in that case, I would tell my athletes to do anywhere from two minutes a mile to anything slower than that. I'll write it down on their pace chart as, in this case, it'd be 11 minute miles to glacially slow. So that's the range I actually put in writing on the pace chart. So it'd be two minutes a mile slower than target marathon pace to quote unquote glacially slow. So really anything slower than that on recovery days is completely okay. So one minute per mile slower on on long runs and then two minutes per mile slower on recovery days, you know, with the caveat that they can go really as slow as their body needs them to on that day. Again, recovery days are about blood flow, most importantly. And yes, there's an aerobic element to it, but you're also creating that blood flow movement equals blood flow equals healing, which allows you after a long run or after a quality workout to get back out there the next day after that active rest and be ready to go. So that's how I break it down for the athletes that train in my group. Hopefully that's helpful, but there is a difference between all three of those paces and you should not only see that difference when you're looking at your watch, but also literally feel the difference from an effort standpoint as you go from day to day. You know, there's, there's basically gradations of easy and each of those easy runs should still be easy in control, but might vary a little bit depending on medium, long run, long run, and then recovery runs. Hopefully that's helpful. All right, getting to Kimberly's sixth and final question. She says, I'm using the McMillan calculator for my paces. I'm not sure how to move up to the goal paces on the calculator. Currently, I've broken the cycle into thirds, starting with current paces in the first chunk, planning on running the calculator's goal paces in the third chunk, with paces halfway between the two for the second 
junk. Do you recommend a different way of doing this? Not necessarily, Kimberly. I mean, that is not a bad way to look at it. But part of it depends on information I don't have, which is where are you now relative to those goal paces? I mean, how how much are we expecting to jump for each of these chunks? But in general, I would say that you shouldn't necessarily within a big training cycle expect massive jumps, jumps from chunk to chunk. You know, we've talked before on this podcast about working within a 10-minute range if you were training for the marathon. So, for example, if you're choosing, choosing for a four-hour four marathon that you would know and memorize the paces between a 355 marathon and a 405 marathon, knowing that if you were working within those ranges in your workouts and when you feel good going a little faster and when you're having a tough day being comfortable going comfortable going a little bit sore and feel good about it that is a reasonable range with with which with which with which in to work in order to feel good about going after a four-hour marathon now if you're expecting jumps bigger than that, you know, more than five-minute chunks, then I think that would be dangerous to expect that kind of improvement within a single marathon block. Now, of course, everybody's different, and, you know, everybody's results and rate of improvement might be different, so I've seen, I've seen all things from a coaching standpoint, but in general, you don't want to expect kind of more than a five to 10 minute jump from the start of a training cycle to the end in order to get to whatever goal outcome you might be shooting for. So that would be kind of caveat one to the answer is, you know, make sure that you're not expecting too big of a jump from one thing to the next. The other thing though, I would say is you have to listen to your body. You have to feel the workouts and see how those are progressing. So, you know, I would go ahead and know and and memorize those that range you're working within through these first, second and third chunks as you're talking about with the caveat again that I just mentioned that it's not more than a 10 minute difference or 10 minute range within your target marathon time. But then go into workouts with the expectation that you're going to see where it goes. You know, you're going to have to feel it out. You're going to have to listen to your body. You're going to have to think about how it feels. And then if it feels too easy at a given effort or a given pace, then perhaps increase the effort a little bit to get to a little faster pace. If that's in line with what that workout is trying to accomplish, or as I like to see, I like to see progression within workouts where an athlete might start at the slower end of the range and then try to progress down as the workout goes and work through that range a little bit, ideally finishing strong, finishing in control. And if you're able to do that, you might surprise yourself and then ultimately be able to graduate in paces a little bit sooner. But it all just depends on how the workouts are going, how you're feeling in workouts, and you really only want to progress through those chunks or through those ranges as your body allows. Because if at any point 
you're going too hard and you're digging a hole for yourself, then it's going to be counterproductive for training. So your general concept makes sense, but then you also have to layer in the reality of how things are feeling and really only allow yourself to graduate, so to speak, once you feel like you're ready. Because the last thing we want to do is to, uh, is to is for you to force it or to kind of get over your skis, as I like to say, and end up falling as a result or getting injured in the case as a runner. So keep that in mind. The other thing I would say as a part of this is that those prep races, that 10K and then the half marathon will all kind of fall in line with these different chunks that you're talking about. So they can potentially become additional data points to layer in not only how you feel in the workouts but how those race outcomes are pointing to what you should do from a training pace perspective so you should have that additional data as you go throughout the program as well so you can look at that at each point and see where you've gotten to based on those prep races but in general and the final thing i'll say kim is Listen to your body. Be smart. I would rather you err on the conservative side of your paces and training than be aggressive, especially given that this is your first marathon to really race because it'll be more important to get to the start line healthy than it will be to try to get and squeeze every little bit out of training. There'll be plenty of time to go get more after this third marathon and the next time you go line up for a hard race. So, in general, err on the conservative side, get to the start line healthy, and then let's see what you can do on race day because there's always there will always be more to go get afterwards. And one thing I remind my runners all the time is that, you know, you might you might be hoping for a certain time with this race. And that fits within the context of what you've done before and what you can do in training this time. But in two years or three years when you've gone through more rigorous training and you've worked through more cycles, whether you finish within one or two minutes of a certain time now is going to be completely irrelevant because the 20 or 30 or 40 minutes in leap that you've made since this next race at CIM is going to quickly become irrelevant in the context of your longer journey. So don't worry too much about the finer nuance of you know running a 401 versus a 406 for example now that and again I don't know what you're shooting for but I'm just giving an example because perhaps in two or three years you're going to be shooting for a 340 or a 330 and what you do now is is going to be really completely irrelevant except for the fact that you want to be building a consistent and solid foundation for the future so that you do set yourself up for those big jumps that are still to come. So keep that bigger context in mind too and and use that as a way not to be too greedy as you go into this cycle because again, as I said, the most important thing will be doing the work and then getting to the start line healthy so that you can get the most out of this cycle but then set yourself up again for much more to come over the the next two to three years or more as you continue this marathon journey. So thanks, Kim, for the questions. Those were awesome. Really appreciate it. And good luck on your journey to CIM. All right, let's get to our next one here. 
This one comes from Sarah. Thanks for this question. It's kind of of a different nature, but one that I think is worth talking about. She says, here's a question I've been mulling on that I think you might enjoy. An example of the sort of thing I would ask if ever ended up, if we ever ended up on a long run together. One thing I love about the podcast is how great it is about gender equity. This is really rare. You have lots of female guests and you're obviously just as passionate about women's running as you are about men's running. When you talk about going to the World Cup soccer matches in France, it takes forever before you even mention that you're going to see women play. So here's one question for you to ponder however you see fit. In your mental training series on the podcast, you and Steve talk a lot about having a warrior mentality. I like that idea a lot, but it's certainly one that is traditionally masculine. Of course, women can perceive themselves as warriors, and thank goodness running doesn't generally involve any actual fighting. But for women, being a warrior is an act of gender transgression. I'm not sure where to go next with this idea, but perhaps you have some thoughts. It seems like the sort of thing you'd be interested in. Anyway, today I finished work stuff early enough that I had time to type this, and I did want to pass along my condolences for the loss of your friend. Thank you so much for the fabulous podcast. Please keep them coming. So thanks for listening, Sarah. Thanks for the question and also for the condolences. That's definitely an interesting one. And I must say I am passionate about the topic of gender equity, not only in sport, but outside of sport as well. Although I tend to find that my voice you know, I have an opportunity to use my voice most most in the context of sport, including running, but also soccer, as I've talked about. And my goal with that is to just to do the best I can as a male to be an ally where I can. I don't want to steal the conversation by any means because there's by any means because there's no way I can fully understand the perspective of women who face a lot of challenges across a lot of different areas in sport, not, not just in terms of access, but also pay and, and a host of other issues. But I will say, first of all, before I answer your question, Sarah, one thing I don't understand is why more men aren't willing to be an ally here and I think you know when I talk about these things on the podcast and you know I spent I don't know 15 minutes talking about gender pay equity in the context of soccer on a prior episode when I talk about these things I often get women thanking me for talking about it which I appreciate but I I must say I don't get enough men thanking me for talking about it and I still don't see enough men standing up or being an ally however they can on some of these topics and so that's one just a call to fellow guys out there to to get involved and I think part of the reason why men are afraid to speak out is because they feel like maybe they don't have a right to because they don't fully understand the perspective and so there are those men who get it who want to support the women around them but just don't know how and or maybe they feel like they're being fake or phony if they do because again they can't put themselves necessarily in the shoes of the women that are facing these issues and I will say for me for a while that was that was who I was you know I was 
quietly an ally, but I was never overtly or or out loud an ally until I just got over myself and said, you know what, somebody needs to speak up. And yes, I can't perfectly understand issues because I'm not a female, but but I can still lend my voice in a way that can be helpful. And yes, I'm not the authority or no, I'm not the authority, but yes, speaking out is better than not. And so I would encourage those men that shake their head and agree with me on some of these things to do in their worlds, whatever they can to be an ally and an advocate and at a minimum educating other men on these topics. And so this is a bit of an aside, but I recently found myself at a birthday party, parents and kids and all the, you know, all the things happening. It was one of those chaotic environments where you get little circles of adults that are trying to, you know, ally together against the chaos of all the children around them. And so I happened to be standing in a circle with a bunch of guys and the topic came up that I went to see the Women's World Cup in France. And one of the guys who I happen to know said something to the extent of, hey, I don't understand why women think they should get paid the same if we know the revenue isn't the same. And it was a little bit of an offhanded comment that I think he thought would just fall away. <laughs> well, he should he should have known better knowing me that, that I wouldn't let that fall away. So... I just, I stood up to him and without being me, without attacking, I just said, look, no, you can't say that because the issues are much more complex. And I went on for about 10 minutes to explain to him, just like I did on this podcast, all of the reasons why his statement was wrong and dangerous. And I happened to have three other guys standing around as well at the same time. We were all listening to me and at the end you know all of them kind of shook their set shook their head and said that makes sense I didn't know thanks for explaining that to me and I really believe that I changed their perspective on the topic and most likely I'm the only person that could because for better or for worse they were going to listen to me a guy who who could for you know the ridiculous reasons that we have in the society who could actually catch their ear you know if a a woman had been standing there telling them the same things I did unfortunately it probably wouldn't have had the same impact I wish it would but unfortunately probably wouldn't because of the biases and stereotypes we have in this world so it took me standing up in that moment to get them to perhaps change their perspective and unfortunately I think that's the way it is with a lot of other men out there and so it takes men being advocates and allies and no, we can't steal or take the voice. And, and it certainly isn't about putting the center of attention back on men. But what we can do is speak up, share, advocate where we can, and then appropriately elevate the women around us when, when those opportunities arise so that their voice can be heard loud and clear. So that's just a rant for the guys out there. Get off the sidelines, speak up. And yeah, you may not do it perfectly. You're going to make missteps. I still worry about that. And I'm sure that there are biases that I bring into these conversations that are just wrong and that ultimately cause me to do or say something that isn't 
exactly on point, but that's not the point. The point is I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with those women that are trying to tackle these challenging complex issues and do my part. And yeah, I may not always get it right, but at least I'm there doing my part. And I would encourage all the men who are listening to do the same because it's going to take all of us to advocate for these issues, you know, whether they be equal pay, whether they be maternity rights, whether they be just the fact that women in sport need to get more attention, more media, more, more credit for what they do. All of those things we can be allies alongside women for. And so I would encourage you to step off the sideline if you've been one to be quiet. But let's get back to Sarah's question. I digress. She basically asks about this warrior analogy, this warrior mentality, and whether or not that's applicable to women. And it's a good question. And, you know, I, I think it's complex and I'm not going to perfectly answer this. And so, uh, yes, I would love, Sarah, if you can get to Austin, let's go on a long run and debate it. But, you know, I, I'll give a couple of thoughts and I may have this wrong again completely, but I'd love others' opinions and Sarah's as well. You know, I think we talked about, we talk about gender stereotypes and, and those needing to be broken down in our world and the fact that men are warriors and women aren't or the fact that women are sensitive and men aren't or women show more emotion and men don't. You know, those stereotypes are out there and frankly, they're probably just completely wrong and need to be mixed up. You know, I think there's a lot of men in this world who have been taught not to show emotion, not to cry, not to be vulnerable in a public setting because that's a sign of weakness for men. You know, that's a stereotype that's out there. You know, and there's a lot of women that have been taught not to be strong, not to, or not to show strength or not to, you know, to be in a, or to, to take hold of a position of power and, you know, take full, full advantage of that because oftentimes when that happens, unfortunately women or attacked or, you know, or, or people try to tear them down. And so that exists, right? That, that, you know, the women are the, the quote unquote weak and sensitive ones and the men are the strong and powerful ones that can't show emotion. And those stereotypes are just completely wrong. And, you know, we need to run from them as much as possible. And it is my belief that and, and I know there are cultures out there where women are actually warriors and, you know, and the men play different roles or maybe they're warriors together. So, you know, my first statement back to you, Sarah, is why, you know, why is that a thing where, as you say, the women can perceive themselves as warriors, but that for women that is an act of as you say, gender transgression. And I get it. Some of that quote unquote transgression would come against you, maybe from other women that are uncomfortable with that, that posture or from men who are going to tear the women down and say, Oh, she's too strong. She's being a bitch or whatever it may be. And again, those are just bullshit stereotypes. And so, you know, the question is, 
forget all of that. You know, I think men and women both should forget all of that and that, you know, women should take the ideas that of, of using strength and power and facing a challenge head on that might come from this so-called warrior mentality and be free to embrace it regardless of, you know, what that means in terms of, as you say, gender transgression or regardless of what that means in terms of how people might perceive them. And, and likewise, I think men should feel the same way and men should also feel okay talking about their fears, talking about their weaknesses, talking about the opportunities they have to get stronger mentally. And, you know, I think there are men that do that. And I think there are women that do the other. And I think gender or sex in this case doesn't matter. The The point is, you know, there are characteristics that can be taken both from a a, a strength position as well as from a vulnerable position and both of those things could be used to be stronger mentally whether it be as a runner or as a human and so I guess I would go back to you Sarah and challenge you know the question and really say why are we even putting this in context of male or female and why is this just not in the context of you know what is a warrior mentality and how can anyone use it to their advantage and I think ideally that's where we would be but I understand the question because you're asking it because really it it might actually result in either you personally feeling uncomfortable or others feeling uncomfortable which would create tension for you and using some of the characteristics that we talk about when we're talking about a warrior mentality and so I guess my challenge back would be to say be bold you know if there are characteristics that you think about when you think about a warrior mentality and whether you consider them male or female, who cares? Own those characteristics. Practice them. Surround yourself with people that will uplift you for using them and you know, and then put it to work and then let the positive vibes or positive outcomes that come from that reinforce it. And the same is true of anybody who might be listening, male or female. If there's something that feels uncomfortable either because of gender stereotypes or just simply because it's foreign to you. That doesn't mean it can't be useful to you. And I would encourage you to step into the unknown or step into the uncomfortable. Put those characteristics or skills to work because that's where you're going to find the magic. And the magic is not carefully laid out for you inside your comfort zone. The magic for you is laid out outside your comfort zone and whether that barrier be created by gender stereotypes or something else then I would say smash those barriers go do the things you need to do to be your best running self as well as your best self so I may not have gotten that perfectly and I would love people's perspective on the question but I want to thank Sarah for being willing to ask it. And I would say, Sarah, come on, get, get to Austin so we can go for a long run and debate that at longer length. So there you go. That's episode 147. Thanks to Kim and to Sarah for, for sending me those questions. Really appreciate it. And 
want to thank everybody else in advance for sending me more questions because I'll do more of these episodes. So please send those to Chris at roguerunning.com. Would love to get them answered on the podcast. And with that, we'll wrap this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.